Federalist number 38. The same subject continued and the incoherence of the objections to the new plan exposed. Tuesday, January 15, 1788. To the people of the State of New York. It is not a little remarkable that in every case reported by ancient history in which government has been established with deliberation and consent, the task of framing it has not been committed to an assembly of men, but has been performed by some individual citizen of preeminent wisdom and approved integrity. Minos, we learn, was the primitive founder of the government of Crete, as Zeleucus was of that of the Locrians. Theseus first, and after him Draco and Solon, instituted the government of Athens. Lycurgus was the lawgiver of Sparta. The foundation of the original government of Rome was laid by Romulus, and the work completed by two of his elective successors, Numa and Tullius Hostilius. On the abolition of royalty, the consular administration was substituted by Brutus, who stepped forward with the project for such a reform, which he alleged had been proposed by Tullius Hostilius, and to which his address obtained the assent and ratification of the Senate and people. This remark is applicable to confederate governments also. Amphictyon, we are told, was the author of that which bore his name. The Achaean League received its first birth from Achaeus and its second from Aratus. What degree of agency these reputed lawgivers might have in their respective establishments, or how far they might be clothed with the legitimate authority of the people, cannot in every instance be ascertained. In some, however, the proceeding was strictly regular. Draco appears to have been entrusted by the people of Athens with indefinite powers to reform its government and laws. And Solon, according to Plutarch, was in a manner compelled by the universal suffrage of his fellow citizens to take upon him the sole and absolute power of remodeling the Constitution. The proceedings under Lycurgus were less regular, but as far as the advocates for a regular reform could prevail, they all turned their eyes toward the single efforts of that celebrated patriot and sage, instead of seeking to bring about a revolution by the intervention of a deliberative body of citizens. Whence could it have proceeded that the Athenians, a people who would not suffer an army to be commanded by fewer than ten generals, should consider one illustrious citizen as a more eligible depository of the fortunes of themselves and their posterity than a select body of citizens from whose common deliberations more wisdom as well as more safety might have been expected. These questions cannot be fully answered without supposing that the fears of discord and disunion among a number of counselors exceeded the possibility of treachery or the incapacity of a single individual. History informs us of the difficulties with which these celebrated reformers had to contend. Solon, who seems to have indulged a more temporizing policy, confessed that he had not given to his countrymen the government best suited to their happiness, but most tolerable to their prejudices. And Lycurgus, more true to his object, was under the necessity of mixing a portion of violence with the authority of superstition. These lessons teach us to admire the improvement made by America on the ancient mode of preparing and establishing regular plans of government. They also admonish us of the hazards and difficulties incident to changing governments. A patient who finds his sickness daily growing worse finds the best doctors to diagnose his condition. The doctors examine the patient and unanimously determine that his illness is indeed serious. They also unanimously prescribe a remedy for the patient. The prescription is no sooner made known, however, than a number of persons, without denying the reality or danger of the illness, tell the patient that the prescription will be poison to his constitution and forbid him to make use of it. Might not the patient reasonably demand 
before he follows their advice, that they provide a suitable alternative to the remedy proposed by the doctors? And if these critics could not even agree among themselves on a suitable remedy, would he not be wise to try the remedy unanimously recommended by the doctors, rather than listen to those who admit the necessity of a remedy but cannot agree in proposing one? Such a patient and in such a situation is America at this moment. She has been sensible of her malady. She has obtained a regular and unanimous advice from men of her own deliberate choice, and she is warned by others against following this advice under pain of the most fatal consequences. Do the monitors deny the reality of her danger? No. Do they deny the necessity of some speedy and powerful remedy? No. Are they agreed? Are any two of them agreed in their objections to the remedy proposed or in the proper one to be substituted? Let them speak for themselves. This one tells us that the proposed constitution ought to be rejected because it is not a confederation of the states, but a government over individuals. Another admits that it ought to be a government over individuals to a certain extent, but by no means to the extent proposed. A third does not object to the government over individuals or to the extent proposed, but to the want of a Bill of Rights. A fourth concurs in the absolute necessity of a Bill of Rights, but contends that it ought to be declaratory, not of the personal rights of individuals, but of the rights reserved to the states in their political capacity. A fifth is of opinion that a Bill of Rights of any sort would be superfluous and misplaced, and that the plan would be acceptable but for the fatal power of regulating the times and places of election. An objector in a large state exclaims loudly against the unreasonable equality of representation in the Senate, an objector in a small state is equally loud against the dangerous inequality in the House of Representatives. From this quarter, we are alarmed with the amazing expense from the number of persons who are to administer the new government. From another quarter, and sometimes from the same quarter, on another occasion, the cry is that the Congress will be but a shadow of a representation, and that the government would be far less objectionable if the number and expense were doubled. A patriot in a state that does not import or export voices objections against the power of direct taxation. The patriotic adversary in a state of great exports and imports is dissatisfied that the whole burden of taxes may be thrown on consumption. This politician discovers in the Constitution a direct and irresistible tendency to monarchy, but is equally sure it will end in aristocracy. With another class of adversaries to the Constitution, the language is that the legislative, executive, and judiciary departments are intermixed in such a manner as to contradict all the ideas of regular government and all the requisite precautions in favor of liberty. While this objection circulates in vague and general expressions, there are but a few who agree with it. Let each one come forward with his particular explanation, and scarce any two are exactly agreed upon the subject. In the eyes of one, the junction of the Senate and the President in the responsible functioning of appointing officers instead of vesting this executive power in the executive alone, is the vicious part of the organization. To another, the exclusion of the House of Representatives, whose numbers alone could be a due security against corruption and partiality in the exercise of such a power, is equally obnoxious. With another, the administration of the President into any share of a power, which ever must be a dangerous engine in the hands of the executive, is an unpardonable violation of the Republican form of government. No part of the arrangement, according to some, is more inadmissible than the trial of impeachments by the Senate, which is alternately a member of both of the legislative and executive departments, when this power so evidently belonged to the judiciary department. 
We concur fully, reply others, in the objection to this part of the plan, but we cannot guarantee that the judiciary should try impeachments either. Our principal dislike arises from the extensive powers already lodged in the judiciary. It is a matter both of wonder and regret that those who raise so many objections against the new Constitution should never call to mind the defects of the Articles. It is not necessary that the proposed Constitution is perfect. It is sufficient that the Articles are more imperfect. No man would refuse to give brass for silver or gold because the gold had some alloy in it. No man would refuse to leave a shattered and tottering house for a firm and spacious building because the latter had not a porch to it, or because some of the rooms might be a little larger or smaller, or the ceilings a little higher or lower than his fancy would have planned them. Putting such analogies aside, is it not plain that most of the primary objections urged against the new system can also be leveled against our current system? Is an indefinite power to raise money dangerous in the hands of the federal government? The present Congress can make requisitions to any amount they please, and the states are constitutionally bound to furnish them. They can emit bills of credit as long as they will pay for the paper. They can borrow, both abroad and at home, as long as the money will be lent. Is an indefinite power to raise troops dangerous? The Confederation gives to Congress that power also, and they have already begun to make use of it. Is it improper and unsafe to intermix the different powers of government in the same body of men? Congress, a single body of men, are the sole depository of all the federal powers. Is it particularly dangerous to give the keys of the treasury and the command of the army into the same hands? The Confederation places them both in the hands of Congress. Is a Bill of Rights essential to liberty? The Confederation has no Bill of Rights. Is it an objection against the new Constitution that it empowers the Senate, with the concurrence of the Executive, to make treaties which are to be the laws of the land? The existing Congress, without any such control, can make treaties which they themselves have declared, and most of the states have recognized, to be the supreme law of the land. Is the importation of slaves permitted by the new Constitution for 20 years? By the old, it is permitted forever. I shall be told that however dangerous this mixture of powers may be in theory, it is rendered harmless by the dependence of Congress on the states for the means of carrying them into practice. That however large the mass of powers may be, it is in fact a lifeless mass. Out of this lifeless mass has already grown a power, which tends to realize all the dangers of a defective construction of the supreme government of the Union. The Western Territory is a mine of vast wealth to the United States, and it will hereafter be able to gradually discharge the domestic debt and to furnish liberal tributes to the federal treasury. A very large proportion of this fund has been already surrendered by individual states, and it may, with reason, be expected that other states will do the same. We may calculate, therefore, that a rich and fertile country of an area equal to the already inhabited part of the United States will soon become a national stock. Congress has assumed the administration of this stock. They have begun to render it productive. Congress has undertaken to do more. They have proceeded to form new states, to erect temporary governments, to appoint officers for them, and to prescribe the conditions on which such states shall be admitted into the Confederacy. All this has been done without the least color of constitutional authority, yet no blame has been whispered, no alarm has been sounded. A great and independent fund of revenue is passing into the hands of a single body of men, who can raise troops to an indefinite number, 
and appropriate money to their support for an indefinite period of time. And yet there are men who have not only been silent spectators of this prospect, but who are advocates for the system which allows it, and at the same time campaign against the new system. They would be more consistent if they argued in favor of the proposed Constitution as a necessary guard against the future powers and resources of a body constructed like the existing Congress. I mean not, by anything here said, to criticize the measures which have been pursued by Congress. I am sensible they could not have done otherwise. The public interest, the necessity of the case, imposed upon them the task of overstepping their constitutional limits. But is not the fact an alarming proof of the danger resulting from a government which does not possess regular powers commensurate to its objects? A disillusion or usurpation is the dreadful dilemma to which it is constantly exposed. Publius.